0: We're live I will right, well, thank you for joining us online we are uh, continuing through our look at these uh, catechism questions uh, that uh, the kids have learning in the back um, from uh, kids for truth and we've called it truth for living because we're, we're wanting to encourage the the parents that come here to to learn the same things and have conversations gospel conversations within their families uh, about the things that we're discussing and so uh, just to quickly uh, recap where we've been and what we've worked on so far, um, we're now in a section on the goodness of God, and we've talked about what is our good God like. He's holy, loving, and perfect in all that He is and all that He does. True, noble, just, pure, and praiseworthy. And it is because of God that we even know what good is. Uh, and we discuss there that there can be no understanding, there's no There's no ethical there's no philosophical, there's no moral, there's no logical basis for morality apart or goodness even from that, that concept apart from the goodness of God. And of course, the psalmist tells us this, so taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Well, because God is good, he is the one and he is the source of all good things. And so the question is who gives us all good things and God is the one who gives us all good things, and we saw how the Lord is a sun and a shield, how He bestows bestows favor and honor, and He doesn 't withhold good from those who walk uprightly uh, He is always acting in our best interests He is always doing what is good and and again, this is so different than our our experience with mankind on this earth um, we we talk you know, about, oh, he's a good man, or they're a good person. And, of course, understanding from the very basic standpoint that theologically, apart from God's grace, there's none good, no, not one. There's no one who understands and no one who seeks after God. But even even after we have God's grace given to us and, and we are able to accomplish good things and to do good things uh, through Christ, um, nonetheless, there still are failings. There still are, are problems. And, and even the best of men fall far short of the goodness of God. Um, That there are times when we withhold goodness from other people, but God never does that. He always acts in every one of his actions in goodness. And so that goodness is particularly seen in his holiness. How good is God? He's holy. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly pure and he's perfectly committed to his glory. And, of course, Isaiah sees this great vision. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, if God is good, then that automatically is going to exclude him being able to do what? Evil. Can God ever sin? Does God ever sin? And, of course, no. God's character and actions are always righteous. And it is impossible for him to treat someone in a sinful way. And again, the psalmist reminds us of that. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Because God never sins, then that thereby means that he never lies. Uh, Does God ever lie? No, he never lies. He's absolutely trustworthy and his word is absolute truth. And again, I think this is this is something that we need to look at and realize this is we, we're so used to experiencing failures in trustworthiness, failures in truthfulness among men. We all fail and fall short in that regard at some point, but God never does. He's always true to his word and true to what he says. Titus 1.2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the world began. And then does God give to everyone good things they do not deserve. And the answer is yes. God is a gracious God who delights in giving good things to everyone. And we saw that in Psalm 145, 8 through 9, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Then we ask this question, well if God is good in this way, but does does he still punish sin? And and really, well, if does the goodness of God bring it to a point where he can just sort of overlook sin? And and of course we understand that God would desires to forgive. God desires not to punish people but to forgive them. He loves to forgive and he loves to show his mercy by withholding judgment. And of course the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies uh, never come to an end. The new every morning, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. And as he is good, he then becomes the source of all true love. God is the source of all true love. Without him, there would be no love. Anyone who does not love God, who does not love, does not know God because God is love. First John reminds us of this. And so understanding that God is merciful and God is loving, he is still yet a God of justice. And he does not look the other way when we sin. Does God look the other way when we sin? No, he hates all sin because he is holy. And we talked about the wrath of God that Paul sort of begins as the the thesis statement, or the thing that introduces the entire book of Romans about salvation, that that wrath is revealed currently from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So I feel, like, I feel like these reviews, they're easy, like early on when we're in a new section, but then along the way out, there, there's a lot more to get through. But that brings us to question 10 uh, this evening. And if God is good, if God always acts in goodness, if our lives are meant to be oriented towards him, um, Should our desire not be to please Him? And so the question that we look at today is how can you please God? Particularly when we noted that God does not just simply overlook sin. He has to judge sin. His character is of such holiness that He cannot abide it. He must judge it. And so the desire then that we should have, the the problem with humanity is that we don't please God, that we're underneath his wrath and we're underneath his judgment. So how is it then that we can please God? Now, what do you think people would say the answer to that question is? What would you, like, if you go out on the street and ask somebody, how can you please God, What's, what do you think they're going to ask? Or what do you think their answer is going to be? Praying, okay, maybe, maybe they mention prayer. Doing good deeds, okay? Keeping the Ten Commandments maybe, uh, following the golden rule, um, trying to have their good outweigh their bad, those different types of things. Go to church. Go to church. Um, how often? <laughs> Let's... Yeah, so go to go to church. Um, read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day. You know, that, that type of thing. I think oftentimes when we, we, we ask or we look at this question and we seek to answer it, we look at what we need to do. And, and the, the problem with that viewpoint is that it's only one side of what the Bible teaches. Are there things we need to do to please God? Yes. But the problem comes where we say we're going to do it depending upon ourselves. Depending upon what we can bring to the table, depending upon what we can offer, the answer to our question, "How can you please God?" is, "I please God by relying on my prayers." Is that what it says? Or relying on my church attendance? Relying on my good deeds? Or relying on the Ten Commandments? Or relying on the Golden Rule? No. How do we please God? We rely on His what? His grace. And that grace provides for us the power to love, to trust, and to obey Him. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, discussing his ministry, talking about um, what he has sought to do, the the drive of everything that the Apostle Paul has done. So when you think about New Testament figures, of course, Christ looms very large as the first person you would think of, but then. Secondarily, you would think of who? The Apostle Paul. So what was it that drove Paul to do all these things? And notice what he says. It is the love of Christ that controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for who? themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised the love of christ is the compelling and controlling interest of paul's life and that love is most clearly seen in his death on the cross in fact you can in many ways sum up the grace of god by looking to the cross there you see pure grace on display Pure gift, a pure gift from God that cannot be deserved. And the implication then of looking to Christ in faith, of being united to Him by faith, is that Christ's death for His pre- people also brings who else's death? Their own death. As one died for all, so therefore all have died. All those who are in Christ, those whom He died for, He also brought them to death so that resulting from that would not be continual death, but new life. And what does that new life entail? What does it mean to live a new life so that we would live no longer for who? Ourselves, but for Christ, for Him who for their sake died and was raised I think what Paul is getting at here is the whole of the Christian life. Uh, The whole of what the Apostle Paul did could be summed up in that phrase, living for Christ. How do we do that? Only through, as Paul is saying here, God's gracious gift and loving gift of Christ that produces this in us. So we are fully and completely dependent on God's grace to please God. Now, our answer speaks of, of three particular areas in which we need God's grace to work in our hearts so that we would please God. To love Him, we, we, need, uh, we need to follow Him. Let me actually go back here. To love Him, to trust Him, and to obey Him. We, needs God, we need God's grace for those who, three things. And so the first thing I want us to look at as we look at what it means to depend upon God's grace is we need grace to love God. We need grace to love God. Now, when we talk about or when we, when we talked about for a second the answers that people would generally give about what do you need to please God? They would say doing good deeds, um, keeping the Ten Commandments, um, And doing a number of of different actions. But is that what Jesus himself says is is the whole point of what what is it that God is really looking for? What does he want his people to do? He wants them to, to obey, but not just obey. He wants them to obey from a heart of what? Love. God wants us to love him. This is what Jesus says. The most important the most important the commandment in the law is this hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one and you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength i think if you if you look at what 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 uh, Jesus is saying here as he quotes what Moses is saying, because Moses is telling Israel what God has said to him, all right, so you see that, that connection there, is wholehearted, unreserved, complete love to God. There's a song that, that, we sing, that we've sung here before More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Why do we sing that? song, more love to thee. What is it indicative of in our lives? Because if we sing that and we truly mean it as a prayer, it means that we want to love Christ more, which means that we don't. That there are areas in our lives where we are falling short of this. What does, how much of us does God want us to, how much of who we are does he want to love him? Oh, and anything short of of 100% love for God fails and falls short of pleasing God. And and that's where we run into a real big problem if we say, oh, I'm going to keep God's commandments. Really? Do Do you realize this is what it's all boiled down to? And there may be some people out there who would say, oh, I do that all the time. But if we're honest... If any any person is honest with themselves, they're going to recognize that there are parts of their lives, there are points in their lives where they do not love God with all that they are. And so they do not please God. And so the greatest commandment, the one in which Jesus says is the most important, we do not do, nor even are we able to do. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Now, what's interesting here is he doesn't even talk about, he doesn't even say no one no one loves God. But he, he even lowers the bar. And he says no one understands. No one is even what? Seeking for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then as he goes through, he's he's quoting the Old Testament. He comes to the end and he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Humanity left to itself is completely and totally 100% not loving God. They don't even seek after God. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8 and talks about the mind that is set on the flesh. Not only do we not love God, but we're what? We're hostile to God. It's not just that we're, we're sort of, sort of uh, you know, going through life and ambivalent about God. We want Him gone. We want to live independent of Him. We want Him off the throne. And so we're hostile to Him, and as a result of that, we do not submit to His law. Indeed, notice what Paul says, it what? Cannot. It's not a possibility. The mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that is apart from the new birth, the mind that continues and persists in rebellion against God, it cannot submit to one part of God's law which means it cannot please God. And that's the thing, that's the conclusion he comes to. Those who are on the flesh, flesh, what can they not do? They cannot please God. Paul says in Colossians, you who were once who once were alienated and hostile in your mind doing evil deeds. It is the, the 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 heart of man, apart from the grace of God, is incapable of doing what God would seek for us to do to please Him. We cannot please God apart from God's grace. We need God's grace. And yet, God commands us to love Him. To love Him unconditionally. To love Him with all that we are. But it is impossible for us... To love God, we instead turned from Him and were His enemies. We're hostile to Him. So, how can we love God? Because He first what loved us, as John says in 1 John four. Anyone who does not love God, who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love and here's what's remarkable god did not love us because we loved him first right we love him because he loved us first in this is love not that we love god but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins so this first command, this, this first goal to love God, it is completely dependent upon the grace of God. And that grace is motivated by and demonstrated in the love of God shown through Christ's crucifixion. It is the love of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that has been poured into our hearts. I love what Paul says here. He's speaking of the hope that he has. His hope is not putting him to shame. Why? Because God's love has been given to him. He's poured it into his heart. The idea here is of an overflowing abundance. In what way has God poured his love into our hearts? Through who? The Holy Spirit. Who's been given to us. The Spirit is the very act of God's grace that comes and we know from other passages, gives us new life. The Spirit is the one who illuminates God's Word. The Spirit is the one who sets us on a path. The Spirit is the one who provides the ability for us to please God. It is all through the work of the Holy Spirit. And God, because of His love, has poured the Spirit into us. So that Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8.15, we who were the people whom He's saved, we who have the spirit, we who were at one time alienated and hostile, unable to please him, instead of receiving the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, what? Abba, Father. That is a term of love. It's a term of relationship and and tenderness. It's a term that shows that we who were once hostile to God, now come and love Him by crying out to Him as our Father. This is exactly what Ezekiel spoke of. The Spirit coming, changing our hearts so that we would love God. Notice what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 11, 18-19. And when they come there, They will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. How can we love God? We need his grace. And that grace is seen primarily in the spirit of God who shows us the work of God in Christ so that we can love him. So we need grace to love God. But secondly, we need grace to trust God. We need grace to trust God. Now, we know very well the story of the man who came with a son who had been demon-possessed and and, and no one was able to find relief for him. And this has been happening for his entire life. And, and the boy was convulsing. And, and it was just a, a, a terrible burden to this father. And so he comes to Jesus and, and he asks him, you know, if you're able to, please deliver my son. And Jesus looks at him and says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who what? Believes. Now, what is remarkable about the cry of this father is not, well, I believe, you have to do it. Notice the humility in his cry. Lord, I believe, but I need you to what? Help my unbelief. I, I think we, we gloss over this passage a lot because it's so familiar to us, but there is something desperately needed for the Christian life in the attitude and the cry of this Father. We don't like to admit it, but we all struggle with unbelief. We all struggle with unbelief. It may be because our circumstances are are of such difficulty and trial that, that we begin to doubt the things of God. It may be because we hear a compelling argument from a detractor of the faith. It may be because we have friends or, or even those among God's own people who treat us harshly. And those things can bring us to a point where we recognize we have unbelief. What are we to do in those moments? Do we turn to ourselves? Believe stronger. Believe Harder. You're the problem. Well, you are the problem, but you're not the solution. The solution is turned to the God of grace who can help your unbelief. That's the wonderful hope of God's grace. It is given to assist and to strengthen our faith. In fact, God's grace is the very means by which we receive faith in the first place. We know this passage very well. Ephesians 2, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no man or no one may boast. It is the grace of God that brings about the salvation of God, bringing about faith. That entire thing. Grace, salvation, faith, the entire thing is not our doing. And in particular, in the original, it is most likely referring back to faith. Faith is not your own doing. Why do we believe in the first place? Because God has been gracious to us. He's given us the gift of faith. It's not because of our works. It's not because we were clever enough or we, were, we were, had better intuition about things, not because we read the Bible better. The only reason anyone ever believes in Christ is because of the grace of God. And, and that should help us when we share the gospel as well ourselves because can you argue somebody into the kingdom? Can you, can you create that faith within them? No. No. But God can use your words as they're tied to the sword of the spirit, the word of God, to bring about someone to have that faith. Paul says elsewhere in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And what Paul is saying here is that Not only has God granted or given us the ability to believe, he's also given us the ability to suffer. In fact, one cannot believe apart from suffering. Jesus makes this abundantly clear. If you're going to be my disciples, you'll be persecuted. And and again, we, we love to talk about how God, this is a little rabbit trail from what we're talking about today. But we love to talk about how God gives us the grace to believe. How many of us really look forward to the grace to endure suffering? And yet that's exactly what Paul is saying here. God grants both things, faith and suffering for His sake. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in writing to uh, the Thessalonians, it was elsewhere he would make this point when he would write his letters Notice who he thanks for the faith of the Thessalonians. And we also thank who? God. We thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as, it is, as what what is really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, what? Believers. We should give thanks to God for the faith that we have because it is only born about by his grace. And that's exactly what Paul does here. And, you know, we, we intuitively know this. When, when we have baptismal services here, when, when somebody comes to Christ, you know, we don't thank that person for believing, do we? We don't come and say, thank you so much for believing in Christ. Who do we thank? God. Because he's the one who's done that work. So we need God's grace to love him. We need God's grace to trust him. And then finally, we need God's grace to obey him. We need grace to obey him. What's interesting here to note about this same passage that we just looked at is that the word of God that was given by God's grace is at work in those who believe. Now, that, notice, notice again, are the believers the one working the word of God into them? No, it's the word working in them. It's the grace of God working in them, producing within them new actions, new desires, new works. Notice what Ezekiel says. We looked at Ezekiel 11, 18 through 19. Look at what 19 and 20 say. Why does God give Israel a new heart? Why does he remove the heart of stone and put the heart of flesh in them? There's a purpose for that. That they may what? Walk in my statutes, keep my rules, and obey them. They shall be my people and I will be there God. We have to keep in mind that God's work of grace in bringing us to love him, bringing us to trust him, ultimately seeks to result in bringing us to obey him. And all of this is done by the work of God. He gives us this new, this new heart. He takes away the heart of stone so that, for the purpose of walking according to his statutes, rules, and obeying them, Actually, this is a common, a common theme throughout the Bible. That when God works and graciously brings someone to faith, He then expects that faith to show itself through works. Notice what Ephesians 2.10 says. We are His workmanship. We are we're not creating ourselves in Christ Jesus, are we? It's God who's creating us in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, we talk a lot about predestination and election and that God chose us to believe in Christ and that God chose those whom he was going to save. But we we leave this out because God did not only choose us to be redeemed. He did not only choose us to be found in Christ. He did not only choose us so that we would be saved. He chose us. That before the foundation of the world that we should walk in good works. And if we pull that out or pull that away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have corrupted the gospel. God saves us by his sovereign grace so that we would live lives that are indicative of good works. This is exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, Again, he's already told us, can we boast in those good works? No, because just like the faith and the love and, and the salvation, these good works have been prepared beforehand by God created in us, not our doing, but his, so that we cannot boast. You know, it's, it's remarkable to me to see how God rewards his people, his genuine people, for what they do. What does, what does he give to his people for their actions on earth. He gives us something. What does he give us? He gives us eternal life. Well, He gives us eternal life because we're united to Christ. He doesn't give us eternal life because of our actions. What does he give us because of our actions? Crowns. He gives us crowns. What do we do with those crowns? We cast them at his feet. Because we and what's interesting in that whole interplay is that is an illustration of what this all means. Why are we throwing the crowns back at Christ's feet? Because he's the reason why we have the crown. He is the one who deserves the glory, not us. we, We make our boast in him, not ourselves. Paul. Again, brings us up in Philippians chapter 2. My, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, how do we do that? Because it's who that's working in us. It's God who works in us both to, desi- both to will and to work for his good pleasure think in Galatians chapter three, and actually, I think this might be Galatians chapter four. I think I may have the wrong um, passage there. Hold on a second. Oh no. Yeah, it's Galatians three. I doubted myself. What was I thinking? <laughs> what does Paul say to the Galatians? Let me ask you only this: Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. So how did you receive the Spirit? And and notice what he says. Are you so foolish then that you've begun by the Spirit, you're now being perfected by what? The flesh. And and there is this, this tension that comes up in our own lives that we think, I've got to, in my own strength, perform all the things that are necessary for sanctification. I've got to do it. You do have to do it. But you've got to depend on Christ to do it. And that's the very thing that Paul is saying here. What's wrong with you Galatians? They were accepting the idea that in order to be right with God, not only did they have to keep the law, but they had to be circumcised. And Paul's like, what are you talking about? Did, did your circumcision, did keeping the law bring you the Holy Spirit? No. So why would you think that it would keep you If the Holy Spirit is the very thing that is working within you, why do you think that that your works, rather than the influence of the Spirit, is the thing that's going to bring about that which pleases God? He goes on in Galatians 5. Listen, if we live by the Spirit, if we have life by the Spirit of God, remember what what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? He has to be born what? Again. He has to be born by water and by what? The Spirit. And so if if we live by the Spirit, if the life that we have, if if, if regeneration, new life comes to us by the Spirit, then what do we do as we have the Spirit? We keep in step with the Spirit. We walk in dependence on the Spirit. That is why the author of Hebrews tells us that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We need to lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely. And then we need to let, run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do we do that? How do we notice the two commands? Lay aside and run. Now, are those commands? So when God commands you to do something, what is incumbent upon you to do? What He commands. It's your responsibility to do what he commands you to do. And in this passage, it's to lay aside the weight and the sin that resides in your life and to um, run with patient endurance the race that's set before you. You need to do that. Where do you find the strength to do that? Looking to who? Jesus. The one who is the founder of and perfecter of our faith. The one who shows God's grace most clearly by taking the joy that was set before him, enduring the cross, despising the shame, and is today seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there is a clear counterbalance here. Our responsibility is to do what we are commanded to do. Our dependence in doing it is on the grace of God. So, how can you please God? The answer should never be, I do this or I do that. How do you please God? I please God by depending, relying on his grace. And his grace is the only thing that provides for me the power to love, to trust, and to obey him. Again, Paul's entire life was summed up with this. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The question that we need to consider from this passage is, are we living for ourselves or are we living for him who died for us? If we're living for ourselves, seek God's grace to turn and to live for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. and Lord, thank you for the clarity at which you speak about these things. Lord, oftentimes our confusion about these issues is because of our own sinfulness, our own, our own desire to twist and distort and to live our own way, our own pride. Father, we we thank you that your word speaks to these things and we pray, Father, that you would strengthen and encourage us, Lord, to depend upon your grace, to obey you, to, to seek the responsibility that we have to obey you, but to do it in full dependence upon your work within us. Father, work through your word this evening. We pray all these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood, amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.